0: Sarah, so we're back in the spotlight hot seat. Yes, well, you're you're back.
1: Welcome back. Thank you. (laughs) It's been a while Um, and as we crawl out of our respective hibernation modes uh, we discover that along with a new year we have a new government. Yeah, Elizabeth Bourne. Uh, She's out, yes, and she's
0: left her her place to Gabriel Attal Mm -hmm. and he is France's youngest ever prime minister. He's just 34 years old. He's also openly gay.
1: Yeah, he was the education minister before and mm-hmm. um, President Mondrian Macron appointed him. I guess the idea is to inject some new life into Mm. this second half of his second and last term. Um, Macron's pretty unpopular right Mm. now. He's had his reforms on the pensions and now immigration. All this has been very hotly contested. And and he's also facing stiff opposition
0: from the far-right National Rally Party. This is, of course, a big issue in the lead up to the European elections in May. The polls are putting the National Rally candidate, that's Jordan Bardella, who is just uh, 28, by the way. A young a real, Yeah, a real young <laughs> Turk. Expresses himself very well, have mm. to say. And he is put at being around 10% uh, ahead of Macron's Renaissance Party.
1: Yeah, yeah. So a real threat there. Um, when you look at this new government, though, apart from this new young prime minister, there's not that many huge changes, mm. like the big ministries like home affairs and defence, economy, justice. Those are all in the same hands.
0: Yeah, all in men's hands, by mm. the way. <laughs> Although two women from the right-wing Republicans' party have been brought in. Catherine Vautrin. uh, She's in charge of health and employment. That's a huge ministry. Mm. And Rashida Dati for Culture.
1: Yeah, Dati's appointment has raised some eyebrows. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's a former justice minister. She served under Nicolas Sarkozy. And she's under investigation for corruption, (laughs) but that's not seen as a barrier. No, Macron says, well, she's dynamic, which she
0: is. uh, And that's just what this government needs. Mm. She's already declared, by the way, that she'll be running to become mayor of Paris in 2026. That will be an interesting race. It will, for sure. Yeah,
1: the the incumbent socialist Anne Hidalgo. Yeah, yeah. So she and Vautrin, though, are a sign that Macron's centrist government has shifted to the right. And you could really feel this in the president's long, very long press conference this week on Tuesday evening. Yeah, two hours, 20 minutes. Mm. I
0: sat through every one of them. Wow,
2: that's Uh, dedication.
0: (laughs) Um, And during that time, well, he sort of laid out his roadmap for the next three years and talked to a number of journalists. Um, He focused largely on education and law and order. He also reaffirmed his very pro-business policy.
1: He talked a lot about rearming France. Mm. And this is actually a word that he used during his New Year's message as well, rearming—it's a kind of military rhetoric. Yeah. And if you see that along with statements about the importance of singing the national anthem, the Marseillaise in school, support for school uniforms, um, a call to boost fertility rates to make more French babies—you can see how he really is trying to appeal to those on the right. <laughs> Retour au même schéma. Mais on est tous là de ce retour au même schéma. Mais on est tous là de ce retour au même schéma. Mais on est tous là de ce retour au même schéma. Now, in his remarks, Macron talked of wanting France to stay France. That has a bit of a nationalist ring to it. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. Uh And it's a slogan that was actually used by the Republicans a few years ago and also a term used by Éric Zemmour. Remember him? Mm -hmm. Far-right pundit um, who ran for president. Mm So um, it's fraught. Not everyone wants France to stay how it is. Journalist Nabila Ramdani has just come out with a book called Fixing France, For her, the world is changing and France isn't changing with it. She spent several years living and working outside of France in the U.S. and the U.K., and to some extent, she says she felt like she had no choice but to leave. She found she ran up against barriers to working in journalism or publishing in France because of her North African background. She's Mm. the child of Algerian immigrants. In this book, she dissects what she sees as France's failures, both historical and recent and she reflects a bit on how to fix them. Her critiques are really centered on this idea of France being a country of impossible ideals, you know, built on a myth of a revolution that guarantees liberté, égalité, fraternité for all. And this isn't just a view from the outside, she says. These are myths that French people tell themselves. France
3: is a country of impossibly high ideals that France fails to uphold in real life. So in principle, The constitution of the current Fifth Republic is meant to achieve liberty, equality and fraternity for all. But in practice, it has often achieved the opposite. It has alienated millions of people from a system that looks after its elite and that puts immense power into the hands of one president who is supported by an immensely powerful security state. So this sense of overwhelming idealism goes back to those who created a republic based on sacred texts, uh, concentrating on enlightenment values that are, again, impossible to apply to real life.
1: I feel like this failure to live up to the ideals and a lot of people left aside is particularly seen in what's happened with the post-colonial experience in France and all these people who came to France not getting the liberté, égalité, fraternité that sort of promised in the text?
3: Well, precisely, you know, freedom and equality for one group of French citizens usually means the suppression of another group. And I consider myself particularly well qualified to examine such a dichotomy because my North African background often excludes me from France's national story Well, I was born in Paris to Algerian parents. There are many French people who do not acknowledge that I am French. So this is what modern France actually looks like. And it differs greatly from those Republican uh, ideals. And I can assure you that the real violent uh, rioting doesn't just come from ethnic minority groups when they are unhappy about uh, how they're treated by the authorities. Uh, The biggest uh, protest movement in recent years were the gilets jaunes, the so-called yellow vests, who are mainly white, working class.
1: Underpinning a lot of your critiques of what you see in France is very much a critique of the political system. Um, This idea of the Fifth Republic with a very strong president, and, and you call for a Sixth Republic, which we've actually heard from the far left, right, from Jean-Luc Mélenchon as well. Um, What is your idea of the Sixth Republic and why do you think it's necessary?
3: Well, I, I think, you know, beyond uh, the far left calling for a, a sixth republic, I think there's a strong argument uh, for a sixth republic being shorthand for a different way of doing things. Mm. I think the current system is unsustainable. And you hear plenty of people saying that radical change uh, is long overdue. I think there is a yawning democratic deficit in the French system of government's that was created with the establishment of the Fifth Republic under Charles de Gaulle in 1958 during the Algerian War of Independence. Far too much power is centralised in the head of state who can act like a a quasi-monarch. He can override parliament. He can appoint anyone he likes to form a government. And I think that this lack of checks and balances is disastrous at the best of time when the calibre of the president doesn't match the scale of the post. But it becomes terrifying if you consider the prospect of a far-right president being elected at the next presidential election.
1: Right. It's interesting you say the idea of a Sixth Republic is maybe more of like a shorthand of just rethinking everything. On some level, is this the next French Revolution? Yes, I think it's
3: in actual fact, I think we are somehow going through another phase of enlightenment, uh, if you like. And we need to consider the very real prospect of having a full-blown extremist you know, gaining power at the next election. Uh, the National Rally, formerly known as the National Front, is a terrifying party if you look at the history. It's full of nostalgists who hark back to the days when Algeria was a colony, and in extreme cases to when France was part of and indeed collaborated with the Third Reich. So I think claiming that this xenophobic sentiment has gone away and everything is fine with that extremist party is is absurd. The truth is that Marine Le Pen, who currently leads the national rally, could enter the Elysee and she can then rule by decree, just like Macron does. She could radically reform France. And that's why I argue that at the very least, reforming the presidential system should remove the mechanism by which a highly determined individual can effectively take control of the whole system.
1: Mm. It's interesting that you wrote your book in English. Who is your idea of who should be reading this book?
3: Well, it's not so much who the book was written for, because France remains a, a fascinating country, and it's an extremely interesting place in the popular imagination around the world. I do hope that my book will ultimately be translated into French because it might allow uh, to do some kind of soul-searching. People like me, uh, coming from a very modest and, and dare I say, immigrant background, are certainly not meant to write this kind of of state-of-the-nation books. And I wanted to change that. I wanted to fill that gap.
1: Could you have written this book in French and had it published in French, or did you have to basically leave and do it from the outside? The they, I have
3: discussed uh, my book with um, um, French civil servants and different uh, politicians, and I have to say that uh, they had a very peculiar uh, attitude in the sense that they refused to discuss the book, and they invoked what they called the droit de réserve, i.e. the right to abstain from commenting. And, and and also there were instances where, you know, I was described as, you know, somebody who's largely unpatriotic because of my uh, criticism of, of, of France. Um, but I have to say that it was America and indeed the United Kingdom that led me into their great uh, educational institutions and indeed their media outlets. And, and, and they effectively put me on the road to writing a book like this. And I have also, to be honest and say that I experienced a lot of exclusion in France, uh, not least of all from elite institutions. I, I had to go abroad to, to further my life chances.
1: Because you had a lot of trouble getting work here because of who you were.
3: Well, precisely. I think, you know, uh, the moment people saw a an Arab sounding and a Muslim sounding name, an undesirable postcode on, on a CV, That was held against me when I applied for for jobs in in, in the media, uh, for example, in France. So let alone uh, making it in the publishing industry.
1: It's hard not to sort of place this book in a long line on some level of French bashing a bit, coming from the Anglophone world, which we often get. And I wonder how you place yourself there.
3: Well, I I think it's very important to to highlight one's country's uh, failures, um, not least of all, because you know you want it to change. It's ultimately a call for change, and in that sense, it's it's very positive and and indeed very optimistic. It, it effectively follows in the great French tradition of dissenting progress. You, you want to effectively hold France to account, to uphold its own idealistic. Uh, principles. It's not necessarily if you like a manifesto or to ask France to look at how people do things uh, in other parts of the world. It's literally calling for France to look at its own heritage and live up to it.
0: So
1: she wants France to really live up to its ideals. Indeed, and and she doesn't have any magic fixes to do that. You know, a lot is about reforming the political institutions. Like we talked about, you know, reducing the power of the strong president. Also in there would be to, you know, to get rid of the militarized police that, Mm. you know, manages so much of these French identity checks on immigrant youth. Also, you know, manages protests and Mm. sometimes cracks down pretty harshly on them. A lot of what she does is name the problem. Acknowledgement is a first step. So if this book is translated into French, it'll be interesting to see if it could be published here. Yeah, yeah. And if it does, will anyone take it on board?
2: Les petits enfants demandent pour Noël De gros éléphants ou bien des Moi je ne rien de
0: so we've talked about France's new government ministers. Now let's have a little look back at a past minister, Françoise Giroud. She was minister for women's affairs and then culture minister in the 1970s. That's right. And she was also a prominent journalist and Jess Phelan
2: is here to tell us a bit more about that. Hi, Jess. Hello. Yes, Françoise Giroud had a really interesting career and that song that we were just listening to there, she actually wrote the lyrics for that. It's called Quand Betty Fait Boop, When Betty Goes Boop. And it's all about the magic of cinema and getting swept up in cartoons like Betty Boop and Popeye and Mickey Mouse.
1: Uh, her first love was of the cinema.
2: Yeah, that's right. That was where she learned to write. So she was born She was born in 1916 and she came from a reasonably well-off family of Turkish-Greek immigrants, but her father died when she was about 14. So she dropped out of school to support the family and she worked first as a typist and then she became an assistant for various film directors. And by the 1930s and 40s, she was writing the screenplays herself. But then how did she make the move over to journalism? It's not a, an obvious career path. <laughs> that's right. Well, it's it's kind of hard to believe, but her first job in journalism was as editor-in-chief of Elle magazine in 1946. That was right around when it was founded. Yeah, that's right. So Elle magazine was created in 1945 by a Russian journalist in Paris named helene Gordon Gaudon-Lazarev. And she hired Giroud, who edited Elle for seven years, and helped establish it as a magazine that talked about news, politics, literature, health, not just fashion or women's issues. Mm. So how did she get the job as editor-in-chief in the first place? Well, as she told it, after World War II, there weren't any journalists left in Paris because they'd either left or they'd collaborated with the Nazis. But she was there and she knew how to write. So seven years at L, then read. Well, by then Giroud was in a relationship with a man called Jean-Jacques Servin-Schreiber, who was the son of a newspaper owner, and the two of them decided to create a new weekly magazine that would take an in-depth look at current affairs, So, a bit like Time magazine in the US, and they called it L'Express. And L'Express is still around today and it still is one of the biggest news weeklies in France. Yeah, and it was really the first of its kind here. Giroud and Seven Schreiber wanted to talk to a younger generation of readers who didn't agree with France's policies in Algeria or Indochina and who were sick of this kind of deferential gossipy tone that a lot of the other French coverage of the time had. Giroud was the editor of L'Express for many years. Yeah, from 1953, when it was founded, to 1974, so 21 years. She was the editor, she also wrote opinion pieces. And this was a time when it was still really pretty rare to see a woman in a top job like this. And then she got an even bigger job, in the government. Yeah, so in the summer of nineteen seventy four, Valerie Giscard d'Estaing had just been elected president and he made Jacques Chirac Prime Minister. Giroux hadn't supported them. She voted for the left and they were on the right. But even so they asked her to take this new position. I'll give you the full title. Secretary of State for the Feminine Condition.
1: (laughs) The Feminine. (laughs) The Feminine Condition. Interesting. I guess we'd now call this women's affairs.
2: Yes, right. I mean the name sounds extremely old fashioned now, but it was the first role of its kind in France. And did it come with any real power though? Because yeah,
0: clearly often these kind of things are symbolic.
2: Yes. So Giroud didn't actually have her own ministry or her own budget and she couldn't really set policy. But she was a very high profile figure and she supported her colleague, Simone Veil in the fight to legalise abortion. Yeah,
1: we've talked about her on the podcast before. She was a Holocaust survivor, was the health minister at the time when
2: she was fighting for abortion rights. Exactly. And, and the case for abortion was being made on health grounds, not women's rights. So Weil, as health minister, led the campaign and abortion was finally legalised in 1975. And then Giroud became culture minister. Yep, just briefly from 1976 to 77. And after that, she made a move to go into local politics in Paris, but she got caught up in a scandal where she was accused of exaggerating what she'd done for the resistance during World War II. So she pulled out and she went back to writing. But she
1: stayed in the public eye for a long time afterwards.
2: Yeah, she became a kind of grande dame of French journalism. She wrote columns. She went on TV a lot to talk about women's issues. And if you watch her interviews, she's really charismatic. She's very self-assured. And she often has this kind of wry smile just playing about her eyes. And she was known for this very sharp, biting sense of humour. So I'll read you a quote that I think demonstrates that women and men will truly be equal the day they give an incompetent woman a powerful job. I don't know if you could say that that was the case in the new government that we got this Mm -hmm. week. Um, But she also said that in an ideal world, a kind of dedicated women's minister wouldn't have to exist because they'd just be part of politics. Uh, And now it it doesn't, France doesn't have a women's minister anymore. It only has a minister for gender equality.
0: Well, there's clearly... Still a bit of work to be done there, I think. Mm-hmm. Do you?
2: Yeah, I agree.
1: You can read more about Françoise Giroud on the RFI website, rfienglish.com. She actually died 21 years ago this week at the age of 86.
0: No, mon fils va. N'oublie surtout pas que le destin de ta famille repose sur toi. Je sais que tu nous feras sortir des entrailles de la misère. Le cœur meurtri, je te laisse partir mais en toi j'ai foi. Ma seule prière. C'est que tu ne te finisses pas comme ton père père, père.
1: Même si je suis l'un de chez moi J'ai des droits Tout comme toi J'ai des droits
0: So Sarah, these are very uncertain times for migrants living in France.
1: Yeah, we've talked about how the government wants to reform immigration policy to both clamp down on illegal immigration while making it easier to give work permits for those working in construction or in the service industry. Mm -hmm. There was even talk of putting this to a referendum. Yeah,
0: well that didn't happen, did Mm. it? But a law was passed in December, and it was a much more hardline version than the government's original proposal because the original one got opposition from both left and right. And this new law includes amendments from the conservative right and the far-right national rally.
1: Yeah, and Marine Le Pen, who leads the national rally in Parliament, was very happy with Mm. this law, right? She called it an ideological victory. Yeah, and now Macron is being accused of pampering to the far-right.
0: Now, the law takes up a lot of what the far-right would like to see. And if it's enacted, then it would toughen certain conditions for non-EU foreigners living in or moving to France. For example, it would delay their access welfare benefits and health care, and it would also make it easier to strip dual nationals of their French citizenship.
1: Yeah, this came out, obviously, during the discussions of terrorism with this, you know, uh, the guy who who stabbed the teacher in the north of France, and he had French and Russian citizenship. There are real questions about what you can do with people who do bad things Mm. and have another nationality. Anyway, um, the law also introduces migrant quotas, and it also calls into question the droit du sol. So if you're, born here to foreign parents, currently, you automatically get French nationality when you turn 18. Now you'll have to ask for it. Some of the
0: provisions could run counter to France's constitution, notably in terms of equality of rights. And Macron himself, along with some others, has sent the text to a top court, the Constitutional Council, for review. And the council is due to deliver its verdict next week on the 25th of January. In the meantime, opponents of the reform, which many are calling the Darmanin law, after the interior minister, Gérard Darmanin, who pushed for it, well, they're saying it's racist. That it criminalizes migrants and it's unworthy of the French Republic. I met some of these people at a rally this past weekend in Paris. It was organized by unions, the hard left, and groups that defend undocumented migrants, known in French as sans papier. One of their slogans was, We don't want this kind of France. Groups of undocumented migrants from in and around Paris are lined up in Place de la République, literally drumming up support. Some attach an inflatable dinghy with a few old clothes onto the bonnet of the car that's to lead the rally through the streets of northern Paris. It's a strong image... Just the day before, four migrants died in the freezing waters of the English Channel trying to cross from France to the UK. We want to show how people are dying at sea in boats, says Natana Sisuko. Our families are dying, especially crossing the Mediterranean. You see pictures of them on TV, on social media. Something's got to be done to stop these deaths. Everyone, line up next to the boat. Move on! A small woman in a long anorak shouts into the megaphone. Mariama Sidibe spent eight years struggling to get a work permit. Now retired from her job as a home help, she's spokesperson for the Paris Sans Papiers Collective. For us, today, it's very important because we demand...
3: It's very important to be here. We're simply asking for this immigration law to be scrapped. It discriminates against us migrants. And even those who've got French nationality, because when you put a foot wrong, they'll take your nationality away and send you back home. And when you go back home and you haven't built anything there, then you have to start over from scratch.
0: You reprends la vie à zero. The march sets off and Mariama is up on the float, dancing, blowing her whistle and leading a call and response session with demonstrators. The immigration reform would in practice give priority to French citizens over non-EU citizens in terms of access to rights and certain benefits. Totally unacceptable, says Carlos Bilongo, an MP with the hard-left en party that wants the reform binned.
2: This law is abject. It targets non European immigrants, so there's a clear racial dimension for people of African descent. Working migrants, even if illegal, currently have the right to social benefits in France because they're working and paying taxes. But with the new law, they'll have to wait five years to access those benefits, whereas a migrant from a European country won't. The message is this kind of society, we don't want it. We don't want this uh, racist society. We want to live together and um, to accept different cultures.
0: Anaïs Gournay is a charity worker and activist for migrant rights. She says disinformation about migrants in the media isn't helping.
2: The message is always the same like migrant people are taking the jobs, migrant people are dangerous, or also the link between immigration and terrorism. And we know that we don't have the the strength to to fight against this message, but we are trying to be in the streets together as much as we can to to change the power force.
0: The notion that migrants are taking jobs is far from the truth. Whether documented or not, the majority are working in sectors where there are staffing shortages, such as hotels and restaurants, cleaning and construction. The original version of the immigration reform wanted to make it easier for undocumented workers in sectors like that to get their papers. But that provision was dropped under pressure from the right. And under the new law, work permits will be delivered on a case-by-case basis, valid for only one year and not transferable from one job to another. (laughs) This immigration law has likely poured cold water on Baccaré hopes of getting a work permit. He's one of around 200 undocumented migrants who's been working for the chronopost delivery service in the suburb of Alfortville and he's been on strike to try and get his permit. <laughs>
2: We've
0: been working there for years, but Kronopos still hasn't legalised our status, he says. We just want to be able to work in a dignified way and live here in France. The immigration law isn't good for us. These people are here. We need them. And there is no issue. It is not an issue. Aubé-Pindal is a sociologist and founder of the Paris Exile Association that works to help migrants find their feet. For her, passing legislation that would send thousands of people back home is not just unacceptable, it won't work. We know that people don't go back. You may think it's bad, but that's the truth. So
3: how does the government plan to do to send back tens of thousands of people every year?
0: They don't have a clue, it's impossible. Hard left MP Eric Cochelle slams the immigration reform as he stands on the lorry wearing his red, white, and blue sash to show his status as an elected representative of the French Republic. We are attached to the Republic, and this law is contrary to all our Republican principles. The Republic of France doesn't distinguish on the basis of your origins,
2: so there is no national preference. That's the far right, the national rally. I'm not ready to hand my country over to the far right.
0: And even if Parliament has passed the immigration law, Coquerel believes that today's march can make a difference. In France, some laws were passed, but not enacted. For example, the CPE, the first war contract in 2006. The mobilization against it was so big that they had to drop it.
1: So, Allison, this reform is harsher than the government originally wanted. Um, how has Macron been justifying it? Well, in a way, he
0: struggled (laughs) Mm. because it's proven quite divisive within his own ranks and the health minister actually resigned over it. In his press conference this week, Macron defended the essence of the bill and saying it was necessary. But he has acknowledged that parts of it may have gone a bit too far. And that's why he referred it to the Constitutional Council for review. So do we know what to expect from the ruling? It's thought that there are around 30 provisions that could be problematic, that could be reviewed. They relate to the issues of equality of treatment as laid out in the preamble of the Constitution. There are also questions about some of the 60 amendments that were added on by right-wing parties that may not necessarily be in the spirit of the original law. But that said, if too much gets changed, well, the right will certainly be up in
1: arms.
2: Mais aujourd'hui, mess on children
0: We've come to the end of the show, and Spotlight on France, as always, is a production
1: of Radio France International. This episode was mixed by Cécile Pompiani. If you like the show, please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. And if you want to write to us, we'd love to hear from you. We're at
0: spotlight.france at rfi.fr. You can also find us on Instagram at spotlightonfrance and on rfienglish.com. Bye bye Sarah bye
2: Allison. <laughs>